You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. I don't know, Jen. I think they're just really good friends. You have never prayed before. Not like this. Not for someone else. You don't know if you can find the words that the gods will understand. The words that will let them know that you cannot live without him that if he does not return, the gods might as well ravage the earth with plagues, storms, and earthquakes. If he does not return, Lord Zeus, I will burn the world in his name and piss in the ashes. You immediately chastise yourself. A prayer to the gods should not begin with a threat. You have been marooned here on this beach for ten years. Ten years of war, of glory, and blood, and vanity. Ten years of murder and death. Ten years of fighting by Patroclus' side every day, lying in his arms every night. The men chant your name, Achilles, Achilles, the greatest of the Greeks. They celebrate you, they adore you, and the only man whose opinion matters holds you in his arms at night. You fall into Morpheus's realm, to the sounds of the waves, the call of the sea, the crackle of the fire, and men singing in the distance. In another time... In another place, this could be paradise. But today he asked you for a thing you cannot do. He wanted you to throw away your honor, the one thing you have both fought so hard for, to save a worthless king. So you compromised. You let him don your armor and fight in your name. You taught him to move like you, to speak like you. And you think he does. He could be me. You are weak and vain. Your honor has always kept you from showing how much you love him. You knew it as soon as you laced up his armor, pausing to place a kiss at each joint and groove, pausing to hold him one last time. He smiled, the flash of strong white teeth in his darkly tanned face. You could see the hint of the lines forming around his eyes. They made him look even more handsome. They gave his face a new gravity and pulled you deeper into his orbit. 
you are hopelessly lost in him. You should be out there with him, biting at his side. Together, the two of you are an unstoppable force, a late spring avalanche that destroys whole mountain villages. While the Greeks chant your name, you know they should also chant his. But he's always been content to hear your name rolling off the lips of the Greek army like a love song, his name lost in the chorus. Together you have decimated the ranks of the Trojans for ten years. You look around your cluttered tent, the detritus of ten years of war. Apart from him, you do not know how to be. Your bed is empty. You can see his robe, carefully folded on the bed. He is so neat, so careful with his things. And you? You have broken more precious things, goblets, statues, people, than you can count. But Patroclus has kept one fine robe, the only thing he kept from that first victory all those years ago, fresh and clean and whole. Patroclus does not like to break things. He is not hard on things, goblets, statues, people. He is calm and quiet, measured. He has told you many times that when you do a thing, it cannot be undone. And you know that what he says is true, but you cannot stop yourself. You cannot hold back the ocean of words that spew forth when you are angry. You cannot dam up the tide of rage you feel when you look at Agamemnon. So you set Patroclus instead. You let him choose the words for you. Because if they want to hear your words, if they want to see your face, then it is too late to hope for peace. There is no prize that can be offered to slake your wretched honor. For a moment, in your armor, he looked like the best possible version of you. He is broader in the shoulders, his calves are more muscular, and his chest. The leather ties strained against it. You go to your war chest and dig out a libation cup. Your hand shakes as you set it on the lid of the chest, the hand that laced Patroclus into your armor. You pray that you did not make the ties of his chest plate too tight. Dear Zeus, let his aim be true. The beach turns quiet. The sun beats down on your tent. You can hear the tossing and turning of the surf. Your tent is stifling. You can feel a rage building. Where is he? He promised he would go no further than the beach. This is taking too long. You should be there. He is not as fast as you. He is not as strong as you. And you've made him a target for the entire Trojan army. Your mood turns dark. No one comes to you. You are alone, and you pace, venom filling up in your throat. You will shout at Patroclus when he returns. You will tell him that he has been reckless and foolish, and if he ever does such a thing again, you'll kill him with your own hands. This is how it starts, the rage, the words and thoughts that you do not want to say, that you do not want to feel, bubbling to the surface and dragging you down in their wake. Where is he? you ask. Where has he gone? But there is no answer. Only the heat of the day and the call of the seagulls as they skim the surface of the waves. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the first time we've done it that way. I think we've done it a couple of times, but you keep telling me you want me to do it. So I'm like, okay. We're breaking all the rules here. <laughs> We're just trying out a new binary. Sure. We're here at last. Here we are. That was a real gut-wrencher of an intro. Yeah, I mean, it's real difficult for me to think about Patroclus and Achilles and not just every bit of me sort of feels just so 
heartbroken at the story thousands of years later. We all feel that way if we have hearts. If you don't feel that way, I guess you just don't have a heart. Anyway, in the first part of our Gender Rebel series, we talked about queer history and the lives of people beyond the binary of men loving men. We discussed queer women, intersex people, transgender people, and eunuchs. Now, we're going to begin another series that looks at queerness in Greek mythology. There are plenty of queer stories in ancient Greek myth that break the binary as the ancient Greeks saw it, which would have been the binary of dominance and submission, not necessarily man and woman, although that also played into it. And people who are gender rebels in ancient Greek mythology just as much as in history. Sometimes those gender rebels aren't who you'd expect and who they're usually portrayed to be, and that's what this episode is all about. In our series on the Sacred Band of Thebes, We showed you how the power of gay love overcame the Spartan war machine. We unearthed the skeletons of warriors long dead and listened to the stories they told us about their lives, their loves, and their deaths. The ancient Greeks thought a lot about love and war and the role of love between men at war. They told stories about this. One of the most powerful and enduring stories told was that of Achilles and Patroclus, the epic legend of one of the Trojan War's greatest heroes and his lover. This story has been straightwashed in more modern history. And that straightwashing may color your understanding of this story, especially if, like us, your first real foray into their story was the 2004 movie Troy. <clears throat> shout out to Brad Pitt's abs. Swoon those abs. And also, shout out to Eric Bana's fuck me eyes. <laughs> He's like one of those hot, beardy dudes. God. If you have seen that movie, you were first introduced to Achilles and Patroclus as cousins. Which they technically were. Were they? Very distant. <laughs> I don't know how distant they were in this movie, but like kissing cousins, all right? Brad Pitt and his abs for days as a blonde, tanned, very ripped Achilles. His younger cousin, Patroclus, desperate to become a famed warrior. I mean, these guys are like decades apart, and Brad Pitt is very much the older one. Oh, he is the Erastes here. Yeah. Brad Pitt's Achilles is a virile, aggressively heterosexual man who does manage to really eye-fuck Eric Bana. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. If the casting was Brad Pitt as Achilles and Eric Bana as Patroclus, oh, I would be here for that movie for days. (laughs) You know, and I think that would have been weirdly historically accurate, actually. They could be browner, but you know... (laughs) Right. Other than that, I mean, anyway, Brad Pitt is a personification of uh, straight male perfection circa 2004, as long as you're not looking too closely at those Eric Bana eye contact scenes. Yes, straight white male perfection circa 2004. Right. And he has been aggressively straight washed, let's be very clear. But it is not just modern audiences who have debated, questioned, and struggled to reconcile Achilles' relationship with Patroclus and his sexuality and gender presentation and what they wanted it to be as a vision of the ideal warrior versus what Homer was telling us in the text. To the ancients, the question wasn't, were they doing it or no? Because most people accepted that. No, they were asking who the Erastes and who the Aramanos were. Who was the penetrator? Who was the penetrated? What were they doing in bed? Can we get the specifics? To them, that was the important question. And absolutely none of their business. It is none of their business. It's none of our business, but we are going to delve into it because that is how we unpick how the ancient Greeks saw gender and Achilles and Patroclus and their relationship and who they were. So sorry, we are going to be asking some questions that you should not actually ask people in real life. Yeah, but shockingly, 
This is one of our least graphic episodes ever. Is it? I mean, we don't really get into anything. We don't get into mutilated bodies. We don't talk about sex acts. We're not crushing children's testicles. Like, I don't know. I feel like this might be a lighter episode. Is it even an ancient history fangirl episode if nobody's testicles are getting crushed? Yes. Yes. Maybe. Probably not. This is the precedent we've been setting. It's what our audience expects from us at this point. Fucking hell. (laughs) (laughs) No testicles were crushed in this episode, you guys. You can all relax. (laughs) Let me get back to the episode. Because just as the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus seems very queer to us in modern times, that relationship struck the ancient Greeks as very queer and as going against their binary. But remember, the binary the ancient Greeks were bound to wasn't male-female. It was dominator and submissive. And the way Achilles is described in the Iliad shows us that he was genderqueer. That he was kind of maybe the feminine one in this relationship, not that there has to be a feminine person, as the Greeks would have defined it. That kind of broke the ancient Greek brains just a little bit, you know? It's just their big macho hero. Well, I mean, he still was, but also he was, you know, kind of feminine. And they just all had to deal with it. And he was, you know, dating, partnered with a more masculine guy who wasn't as great a warrior. And it's like, wait, wait, which is the, which is the, I can't wait. I can't tell what you guys are doing in bed. Yeah. And also one of the things that you were expected to do when you were in this Erastes Aramanos relationship is you were expected to grow out of it. If you were the younger partner of the Aramanos, you were expected to grow out of this coupleship and become an Erastes and partner with someone younger because that's how the pederastic relationship works. So To see two people who are roughly the same age together like this, it is weird. They don't understand it. It breaks their brains. Yeah, and if you're not sure what Erastes and Aramanos mean, we're not going to break it down in detail for you guys here because we've talked about this extensively in other episodes. There is a Patreon episode at the $5 level about Hadrian and Antinous, which gets into it in a lot of detail, and that's basically your introduction. And then We start talking about it in more detail. You know, you don't have to listen to that one, but it is a very, very in-depth intro to that concept. But we also talk about it in our sex worker series and in our gender rebel series. So if you are not sure about what those things mean and you want to listen to us talking about it more, start with those episodes. We're going to proceed as if everybody here knows what they mean and is pretty informed. So Achilles and Patroclus came from a more ancient time than the classical Greeks, which is Sort of where a lot of this stuff gets codified in classical Athens, right? They were probably relics from the Bronze Age, from Mycenaean times, or even older, from the time when these oral histories began to rise. Homer himself dates from the 8th century BC, the beginning of archaic Greece, and these oral histories probably long predate him. And Achilles and Patroclus did not conform to the later classical Greek binary of dominance and submission. They bent that binary, and the ancient classical Greeks argued about it in symposiums until the break of dawn, well into their cups, making wild swings and writing slash fiction in their heads, and getting really, really feisty about it. Because the classical Greeks didn't understand the archaic Greeks any more than sometimes we understand the classical Greeks. It's difficult to parse out and understand their worldview. Think of this episode as a symposium. We gather here today with our wine, with our girls, Hypatia and Aspasia and Phryne and all the hetere of yore to look at Achilles and Patroclus with a queer lens. 
and not only the modern queer lens, but the ancient queer lens. Who was the penetrator? Who was the penetrated? Was Achilles a gender rebel? Was this relationship? Was this phenomenal, terrifying hero queer to the ancient Greek lens? And did that, in fact, blow their minds? Spoiler. Yes. Yes, it did. So, to get there, first, we're going to tell you the basic story of Achilles and Patroclus as told by Homer and as known by the ancient Greeks. I just want to say... Not everything we're going to tell you comes from Homer, because the story of Achilles and Patroclus is found in lots of fragments in different places. So this has been grouped together as best I can make it. There are stuff, facts we've pulled from Hesiod and other places, because Homer doesn't give you all the details on Achilles and Patroclus. It's roughly archaic Greek dated around the time of Homer, though, right? Approximately. Maybe, maybe not. Except for the stuff from Plato. Except for the stuff from Plato. Some of the sources are much later. I've tried to keep things that are more Greek and less Roman that we're talking about. A lot has been lost. And I think one of the really important things about Homer is Homer and lots of the tragedians, like the ancient Greek tragedians, they knew their audience knew the stories already. So they didn't rehash things that they felt their audience didn't need to know. So there are details about Achilles and Patroclus, which you don't find in the Iliad, but you find in other places that Homer doesn't tell you because he's like, well, they already know this. So I don't have to tell them this. This is just common knowledge. You're like, I don't have to make a giant deal about it because everybody knows it, you know? Like, all I have to do is hint and people will get what I'm saying. Exactly. But for us, we don't know that. So we are pulling from other sources that were either contemporary or slightly later that may have been pulling from contemporary sources to Homer's time or have been lost. So we're doing the best we can to fill in the gaps. But again, not everything we're going to discuss here will be found in Homer. The thing about the Iliad is it literally takes place in year like 10, year nine and a half of the Trojan War, when it's just like sort of a two week period or maybe a month period on a beach when Achilles decided to stop fighting. So we're going to tell you stuff outside of that. This is all a tangled web that we weave. Don't think too hard about where we're getting things. Just know that we've done the best we can do, and it's a good story worth listening to. So not a lot is known about Patroclus. At least, not much is known about his childhood. His father was Menoetius, one of the Argonauts, but not one that anyone actually remembers, like Heracles or Jason or Atalanta or Orpheus or even Peleus, Achilles' dad. Menoetius is kind of forgettable. His name means doomed might. And he was the son of actor, king of Opus, a city in Locris, which is a region of Greece. So Patroclus did have royal blood, but Opus was kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was a little bit of a backwater. And his dad, being the king of that place, wouldn't have read as a particularly big deal to the ancients. He was like king of a really small town. He was a really big fish in a super tiny goldfish bowl. Patroclus's mother isn't actually really known according to the fragmentary sources, but it's possible that she was one of these three women, Palamile, Stenile, or Periapus, all women who are largely unremembered in Greek mythology. We don't really have anything more than their names and their very loose connection to Patroclus. And Patroclus himself would be a footnote in Greek mythology the son of a hero who was almost great, but not quite, were it not for Achilles. And here's the story of how they met. When he was a boy, not sure of the age, the timeline here is very fuzzy, Patroclus was playing dice with his friend, Chlysonymus. Something happened between these two, some kind of altercation. The details are fuzzy, again. And Patroclus lost his temper and killed Chlysonymus. 
To escape the wrath of Chlysonymus' family, Patroclus' dad took him to Pythia to live at the court of Peleus. Peleus was also a king, and he was an old buddy of Patroclus' dad. They were Argonauts together. Both of them kind of unremembered Argonauts. Peleus was a little bit, he distinguished himself a little bit more, but not by a lot. Peleus was also Achilles' dad. This is how Patroclus came to be a part of Achilles' orbit. There's another event in Patroclus' past that's kind of important. At some point in his youth, probably before coming to Pythia, Patroclus was part of the Oath of Tyndareus. The Oath of Tyndareus goes back to when King Tyndareus of Sparta was looking for a husband for his otherworldly beautiful daughter, Helen. Yes, that Helen. She was Helen of Sparta first. Anyway, there was a problem. Every eligible man and their sons wanted to marry Helen. We don't know how old Patroclus was at this point in time. He probably was a child. He could have been a teenager. It's very unlikely he was a full-grown man. We're just not told the details. The timeline is so fuzzy. Madeline Miller, in her novel, The Song of Achilles, suggests that Patroclus was just a small child at the time, and I tend to go with that. Odysseus, the cleverest of all the Greeks, the wily fox that he was, offered a solution to the problem of everyone and their brother wanting to marry Helen. Odysseus told Tyndareus to make every man present at this massive courting event swear that if anyone tried to steal away Helen from whatever husband she chose in the future, they would all come to the aid of Helen's husband and help take her back, because otherwise whoever she didn't choose might get real offended about it and try to steal her. That was the fear. And also, you know, because women are property, and of course, honor is at stake, right, Cucullin? Honor is at stake. That's right. Thank you, Spartan mom Cucullin. Let me fix your wig here. Hang on. (laughs) All right, got it. Tyndarius agreed, and every man present swore that they would come to the aid of the future cuckolded husband, because everyone was pretty sure that there would be a cuckolded husband. Oh, yeah. Everyone was like, this is never gonna last. They were like, oh, man, he's gonna lose her interest real quick. (laughs) Patroclus also swore the oath, but Achilles didn't. That's because Achilles wasn't there. He was too young to be present. This tells us that, although ages are almost never stated and timelines are super fuzzy, Achilles was probably younger than Patroclus, which becomes an important factor later in their dynamic. So, Patroclus, the exiled prince, wound up in the court of Pythia, and during his time there, he became a very close friend of Achilles. He came to serve as his squire and companion. After this, Patroclus, the exiled prince, Patroclus, who killed a boy over a game of dice, Patroclus, the hothead, he sort of disappeared. When he became Achilles' squire, he underwent a radical personality change. Maybe it was his regret and grief over what he did, killing someone over a game of dice. I mean, yeah, I could see that. That might grow you up real quick. Maybe it was that he was a little older and more in control of his emotions. We don't know. We're not told. We just have to accept this. But descriptions of Patroclus as someone who would lose his shit and kill someone over a dice game end here. Patroclus became level-headed, a calming influence on the passionate and quick-tempered Achilles. Patroclus became, in a lot of ways, Achilles' conscience and his moral compass. He became a mentor of sorts for Achilles, showing him how to be better, more than just the greatest warrior, but also a great human being, one who could overcome his rage issues. And I mean, that does kind of make sense for me. I mean, Patroclus is walking into a situation where his survival does kind of depend on Achilles seeing him positively and welcoming him into the fold, you know, even as kids. 
Like, if Achilles has rage issues that just eclipse Patroclus's rage issues, and Patroclus had rage issues that led him to kill somebody when he was a kid, maybe he just kind of changed like a chameleon changes and became somebody who could calm Achilles down because, in a sense, he understood those rage issues. But also he was becoming who he needed to be in this situation. Nothing is in the original text, but I totally... Again, this is how I see it as well. I'm like, you know, he's in a new place. He's on his own. Like, what does he have to do to survive here? And this is who he maybe has to become. And it does sound kind of Erastes-like, right? Not the pederasty part, but like the older mentor part. Patroclus was the older of the two boys, the mentor, the calming influence. But Achilles was the one with more social standing, as he wasn't in exile, and he was considered the greater warrior of the two boys, you know, even in childhood. So... Even at the beginning, this relationship was hard for the ancient Greeks to define. Yeah, they kind of don't know what to make of this. Sometime during their youth, Achilles and Patroclus became lovers. While this is never explicitly stated in the Iliad, Homer drops some extremely obvious clues that support the love affair of Achilles and Patroclus, which we'll go into in more detail later. So this is what we know about Patroclus's youth how he met Achilles, and how they were together before the events of the Iliad. Now, we'll take a look at Achilles' childhood and his background. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Achilles' origins would have been approximately as humble as Patroclus's, maybe a little bit higher because his dad was a little bit more of a well-known hero in the Argonauts, but not that much more well-known. Peleus isn't a famous Argonaut either. Pythia isn't a hugely celebrated area in Greek mythology, and this is by design. Homer doesn't give us a noble warrior born from Sparta or Thebes or Crete or Athens, although at this time Athens wasn't a world superpower yet. I mean, I think Athens appears like in one line of the Iliad. Like, they were not a thing back then. Yeah, they sent some ships. That's all they did. Right. This is in the 8th century BC. They just weren't that important back then. Homer gives us two epic heroes, Achilles and Odysseus, alike in their fame but not their temperament, from Pythia, a lesser-known area in Thessaly, and Ithaca, an island, both areas that are kind of on the outskirts of the ancient Greek world, including at the time. And he does this to make them more relatable. These are like the original farm boys, or in this case, low-born princes, who will go on an epic quest in a galaxy far, far away. His origins would have been about as humble as Patroclus is, if it wasn't for his mom. Before Achilles was born, there was a prophecy concerning his mother, Thetis. She wasn't human. She was a water nymph, and a stunningly beautiful one. 
all the other gods, including Fuck Daddy Zeus, because obviously, wanted to get with her. This prophecy said that whoever had a son with Thetis was in trouble because this son would be more powerful than his father. Which, as we all know in Greek mythology, is a red flag to the fragile dicks of Mount Olympus. Thank you, queens, for the term fragile dicks and fragile dick energy. Shout out to Queen's podcast. We owe you guys a drink. (laughs) Anyway, Zeus, Poseidon, and all the rest of the Olympian fuckboys were like, we'd better lock down Thetis with a mortal man. Because none of us needs a son who's more powerful than, I don't know, one of us. A son who could shake the heavens, or rattle the earth, or raise the seas, or rival the Olympians. Yeah, and bear in mind that this was Zeus's own playbook. He hacked his father's genitalia off. And did his father do that before that? To his father, and then his father, and then his father. They all impregnate women, probably non-consensually, and they give birth to genital-hacking sons. So, look out. So anyway, Zeus decreed that Thetis would marry Peleus. Probably because Peleus was a pretty pious dude, and he was also a hero, but he was kind of just a normal guy. He was not that epic a hero. He wasn't semi-divine like Heracles. He was just, you know, a guy. Ordinary. Mortal. Good enough, but not exceptional. He was like the cornflakes of heroes. (laughs) No, I think he's a little better than cornflakes. He's like... I'm not a fan of cornflakes, maybe I'll agree, but just in my my lexicon of carbs... (laughs) He'd be (laughs) cornflakes. I mean, I kind of feel like he's like plain buttered noodles, right? Like, okay. Oh, I love plain buttered noodles. God, no. He's like dry toast. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, he is like dry toast, essentially. Anyway, so I don't know. He's like the dry toast of the ancient world. Someone more powerful than him would not be a threat to the gods. You can be more powerful than dry toast and, and still just be... Noodles without butter, with butter without butter. Depends on how you feel about butter, I guess. So Thetis was just like, nope, nope, a clock. She's like, I am a goddess. I'm not getting with a mortal man. I'm not getting with any of you fuck daddies. Can you all just leave me the fuck alone? Nope, I'm gonna nope right out of this fuckery. Nope, rocket into the sun. And since she was a sea nymph and Peleus was dry toast, She was just going to refuse to sit still and be married to that guy. What was he going to do? Climb into the sea and force her? Thetis had special powers of her own. She could shapeshift into different sea creatures to avoid her suitors. Peleus, a generally unexceptional bowl of cornflakes sort of guy, had no chance of making this happen. But the gods wanted Thetis married to Peleus so they could lock that prophecy down. Proteus, a sea god, took Peleus aside and told him the secret to conquering Thetis. Proteus told Peleus to hold on to her as she changed form, and eventually she'd get tired or change into something he could easily conquer. Which, of course, is what happened, because that is called wrestling a woman into submission. It is not okay. I mean, you'd think we don't have to say that, but apparently in the ancient world we do have to say that. Bad Peleus, bad. So... As we said, Peleus somehow caught Thetis and held on to her, wore her down, and eventually, she was just too exhausted to resist him. Wow, what an epic romantic story to tell your children. How I met your father, kids. That's really the meet-cute we all dream of. That's what we all aim for. I think that John Hughes made movies about this in the 80s. I don't know. You know, re-watching some of those movies, it does kind of feel that way. So, there was an epic wedding. That's where the seeds of the Trojan War were laid when Eris, the goddess of strife and chaos, 
gate-crashed the wedding and tossed a golden apple into the crowd, declaring that it should go to the fairest. Three of the most powerful goddesses got their whole egos and identities wrapped up in being judged the fairest. A mortal named Paris got roped into this whole travesty, and eventually this resulted in the Trojan War. But all that is in the future. All you need to know for now is that Thetis and Peleus got married, and it was not a happy marriage. Thetis had a son with Peleus, or a few sons. The sources here vary, but I mean, I've more commonly seen it that it was just the one. And she loved her son. She was legitimately happy about this little boy named Achilles. She loved him so much that she didn't want to lose him. She didn't want him to die. She wanted to burn away his mortality by putting him in a fire every night and then anointing him with ambrosia by the day. Allegedly, this whole process is going really well until Peleus watched his wife putting his son in a burning fire and kind of lost his mortal mind. I mean, that is reasonable. I guess, but like, <laughs> he's fine. He would have been so much more fine if Peleus had just like taken a moment and been like, hey, wife, you didn't want to marry me. What is this about? And can we discuss it? Like, is this an Olympian thing? Can we have a pause? Can we just have a calm, rational, I statements conversation about how you're putting our son in the fire? See, this is how I feel when you put our son in the fire. <laughs> when you put our son in the fire, I feel not good. <laughs> so again, Achilles has his father to thank for the fact that he was not immortal. Thanks, Dad. There's also a much later Roman source that gives birth to that famous Achilles heel. It's a story about how Thetis dipped Achilles into the river Styx to make him invulnerable by holding him by his heel so that only that little bit of heel remained mortal. But as I said, this story is much later. It's not actually from the ancient Greek canon. It's from a Roman source from like almost a thousand years later, I believe. It is from a Roman source. I think so. The reason I really go back to the story of Achilles and the fire and his mortality being burned away is because we actually see that in the mythology of Demeter and Persephone. After Persephone has been taken to the underworld, her mother is like so distraught that she wanders the earth and kind of becomes this nursemaid of this mortal child and essentially is doing the same process to him to burn away his mortality. So I think that is much more in the Greek canon than the heel story. Anyway, so after Peleus became totally unreasonable and threw an absolute hissy fit about Thetis putting the baby in the fire, Thetis stormed off and left Achilles to be raised by her shitty husband. But she appeared to Achilles sporadically throughout his childhood and adulthood because she did love her son even if she had, you know, kind of a unique way of showing it. Achilles showed promise as a warrior really young, although again, the timelines are all over the place here and it's all really confusing. At some point in his childhood, he trained with Chiron, the one reasonable centaur, he of the double dong, double dong Chiron, everyone knows about him, epic coach of heroes. Chiron taught Achilles the arts of war, healing, and music. By the time Achilles left Chiron's double dong cave, he was a well-rounded and very skilled young man. Emphasis on young, although we don't actually know how young. It's a mystery. So, at another point in Achilles' youth, Thetis heard a prophecy that Achilles would die if he went off to fight in the upcoming Trojan War. So, Thetis went so far as to kidnap him and disguise him as a dancing girl in the court of the king of Skyros to keep him from going to war. She renamed her son, or they renamed her son, Fira, or bright-haired or red-haired, because of his long, bright hair. 
Achilles was remarkably beautiful, kind of a femme-presenting youth. He easily blended into the chorus of dancing girls or ladies-in-waiting, who we must imagine also looked something like him. And it was only through trickery that his true identity was discovered. And we're not going to go into this episode in Achilles' life in too much more detail here. We are going to cover this story in the next upcoming episode. All you need to know for now is that Achilles was able to pass as a girl in the court of this king, And that gives you a clue as to what he looked like and how his gender was presented. He was very pretty, very slim, and very feminine. So that's Achilles' background and origin story. He was semi-divine, with a mortal father and a senior mother. He had both mommy and daddy issues, I think that's pretty clear. (laughs) He had baggage, okay? And except for the whole thing about semi-divinity, his background is kind of similar to Patroclus' background. Both are the sons of kings, but they're kings of backwater communities, not powerful kings of powerful cities. Achilles is always described as being very tall, with bright hair, usually a kind of reddish blonde. He was very fast, an exceptionally skilled warrior, the best warrior among the Greek army, but he's usually shown as being beardless and quite young. We know he had a protracted period in his youth where he passed as a girl. So he's a powerful warrior, but he's actually pretty feminine presenting. He's genderqueer, maybe even gender fluid. That in itself would have broken the classical Greek brain a bit. We know it's probably breaking the brains of some modern listeners. It might be a different way of thinking about Achilles than you are used to, especially if your intro to Achilles was Troy from 2004. So the classical Greeks just didn't know what to make of Achilles. And here's the thing that I, I mean, I did the primary research on this, so I've had a lot of time to think about this. So the ancient Greeks can really wrap their heads around gender queerness in their gods, right? We see it with Dionysus, we see it with Aphrodite, but they did try and erase that. We see it with a little bit with Hermes. Apollos definitely has a, has a gender queerness to him, and he's very problematic, but he does. And they can kind of see it in their immortals because, like, they're not mortal. They're not like us. They're something else. And I kind of feel like maybe this whole myth about burning away Achilles' mortality might be their way of trying to understand how he's described and how he's different from them. He is part divine. He's semi-divine. And maybe his gender queerness was part of his semi-divinity or would have read that way to the ancient Greeks of the archaic period, possibly. I don't read Greek. I don't read ancient Greek. I don't read classical Greek. I don't read archaic Greek. So I can't tell you exactly what's in there or what the um, nuances of, of the story is, because all of these, the Iliad, the Odyssey, all of the stuff that comes down to us had nuances that we don't know. So it's just a thought that maybe there is something that we don't know at play here. Well, and also maybe the gender queerness of Achilles would have read as semi-divine. That would have been one thing that would have been sort of a giveaway to his divine status. And another thing might be his paleness and blondness, which was another thing that was associated with the way that the gods looked. Not all gods, but some gods, yes. Particularly like the bright hair. Many gods did not have bright hair, but a few gods did. Particularly like, I think Aphrodite is sometimes described as having bright hair. I think Helen had bright hair. Again, these are not really how they would have looked because we're talking about Mediterranean culture. So I think it is a technique of saying there's something different about this person. So we don't know exactly how old Achilles was when he joined the Trojan War, but we do believe that he was pretty young when it started, maybe around 14 or 15 at maybe the youngest. But that's a guess. I didn't see anywhere where it said this is how old he was. 
The Trojan War was a 10-year conflict that literally sapped everyone's life. Was Achilles like nine-year-old superhuman strength through Colin Young when the Trojan War started? We don't know. Time is kind of fuzzy here. But we know that Achilles was young enough to be mistaken for a girl. So let's say he's in his mid to late teens, right? That seems legit. Maybe early 20s. Anyway, so now you contrast that with Patroclus. We don't have a lot of descriptions or depictions of Patroclus, and he's generally accepted to be older than Achilles, but not a lot older. However, he is usually depicted as a more mature man, with dark hair and olive skin. He's sometimes shown as bearded, particularly later in the Trojan War, and sometimes clean-shaven. He looks kind of like you'd expect a Mediterranean man to look. Achilles, on the other hand, is lean, he has bright hair, possibly reddish-blonde, He's almost always beardless, and he's pale. And that paleness and bright hair we've talked about before. These are ways of othering people sometimes because, you know, Goths and Celts were blonde-haired and pale, and they were kind of unusual-looking to the ancient Mediterraneans. But it was also a way of showing divine heritage, as we talked about before. In short, Achilles is femme and fey and beautiful. He's this lean, gorgeous warrior, and he looks really different from everyone else around him. And Patroclus is... Well, he's human. You could kind of mistake him for any of the other warriors around him. He isn't special, or at least he doesn't look special. And there isn't anything in his background that is particularly special. I mean, I'm sure a lot of those guys killed a childhood friend over dice games because it was the ancient world, and that was what people did. I would also say about the sort of, like, paleness, because we don't know what that means when we say pale, right? You know, the paleness was also associated with women in classical Athens, right? And in Rome upper-class women were not allowed out. (laughs) So that was a sign of beauty to be pale. And it was also a sign of wealth because if you could stay in the house all day, it means you had people to run your errands for you. Exactly. And again, some of Homer, we are getting through a classical lens. So that is another thing further removed. It might be something that was added. So already you can see how this relationship would have really confused the ancient Greeks or the classical Greeks who always wanted to know who the Erastes was and who the Eromenos was. At first glance, Patroclus should have been the Erastes, the lover. He was older, depicted as more physically mature, and Achilles was the younger, more femme one. But it's not so simple, because Achilles was a powerful, heroic warrior. Achilles was the one with the semi-divine parentage. Patroclus had no real special background at all. And again, their social status, aside from this parentage, was pretty equal. Their ages weren't that different. Patroclus might have been a little older, but they were pretty close to the same age. They were both very young when the Trojan War started, we think. So the classical Athenians needed to know who was on top and who was on bottom. And again, I mentioned this earlier. The other thing they really desperately wanted to figure out is why hasn't Achilles outgrown this relationship? If he is the Aramanos, he should now be moving on to being a predator of young boys, right? That's how these relationships go. He should not still want to be with his lover. He should be moving on. And Achilles doesn't. He's in a really happy relationship. By the end of the Trojan War, they've got to be in their 20s or early 30s, right? We, we imagine. And there's still a couple. And to me, this feels very Theban sacred band. And it feels really like the roots are here. This relationship is in the mythology, in the pop culture. 
in the history and the roots is kind of coming from these two guys. So now that we've set the scene, let's take a pause and discuss how the ancient Greeks talked about this relationship. And we're talking about the classical Athenians who wrote things down. Time period is around 500 to the 300s BC, possibly around 300 years at the least from when this story was originally written down by Homer. And this was contemporary to the sacred band. So the ancient classical Greeks sometimes debated whether Achilles and Patroclus were lovers at all. But it was much more accepted than now that they were. This wasn't that much of a question. To them, the more important question was this. Who was the Erastes? Who was the Aramanos? What were they doing in bed? It all comes down to that. There is even a section in Plato's Symposium where all the guests sort of argue about this, and it's ridiculous. In this section, Plato and his guests are arguing about love and who gets to essentially be praised for being the best lover, the most deserving of going to the Isle of the Blessed after death, because they died nobly and for love. I'm sorry. I'm just like, really, Plato? Anyway, the argument is that Achilles, who avenges Patroclus's death, even though he knows it will cost him his life, deserves the epic spot in the afterlife. It is a given to everyone present, except one guest who thinks they were just really good friends, that Achilles and Patroclus were lovers. What is open for debate is who was the lover and who was the beloved, the Erastes, the dominant, and the Aramanos, the submissive partner. And in this symposium, the guests are drawing from a source that we no longer have. This is a source called Aeschylus's The Myrmidons. I think it's a, th- a trilogy of three plays about Achilles and Patroclus or about the Myrmidons in general. We don't have that source, but this was very familiar to Plato and to everyone at this party. Yeah, so Phaedrus, one of the guests, has a very strong view that Achilles was the Aramanos, the submissive partner. And in the symposium, he's criticizing a different portrayal of their relationship in the lost play by Aeschylus, as we said, where Achilles was the Erastes, the older, more dominant partner, the Brad Pitt, right? This is a quote from a brilliant article by Juliet Grace Harrison called Shipping in Plato's Symposium. Quote, In Phaedrus's short speech, we see evidence of both fan fiction and meta-commentary on Achilles and Patroclus. Phaedrus has a disagreement with a lost trilogy of Aeschylus that depicted the Achilles and Patroclus relationship as that between Achilles as an older lover and Patroclus as a youth with whom Achilles was in a sexual relationship, a relationship common in Greece at the time. Phaedrus does not doubt that Achilles and Patroclus were lovers, but he objects to Aeschylus's depiction of Patroclus as the Aramanos, the younger object of Achilles's love, and Achilles as the Erastes, the older man who actively loves Patroclus. Phaedrus is responding to Aeschylus's fanfiction, which wrote a particular form of homoerotic relationship between Achilles and Patroclus, with a meta-commentary on how he believes the relationship should be read in the Iliad. So according to Phaedrus, Aeschylus talks nonsense when he says that Achilles was Patroclus's lover. He was more beautiful than Patroclus and still beardless, as well as much younger than Patroclus, as Homer tells us. Although the gods certainly give special honor to the courage that comes from love, they still show greater amazement and admiration and respond more generously when a boyfriend, or Aramanos, or beloved, shows affectionate concern toward his lover, his Erastes, than when a lover, or Erastes, does towards his boyfriend. And this might be a little bit confusing about who is loving whom here, 
So let's take a minute and just break this down, Jenny. Yeah, okay. So here's here's a little nuance of the Erastes-Aramanos relationship that I kind of didn't wrap my head around until we got to this part. So the way that love flowed, according to um, the ancient Greek conception of the Erastes-Aramanos relationship, was from the Erastes to the Aramanos. The Erastes was the active partner in all ways. He was the one who pursued the Aramanos. And he was also the one who actively loved, like had the feeling of love toward the Aramanos. And the Aramanos kind of just accepted it all. Like they were the passive partner. Yeah, it's kind of just the Aramanos' job to take the love that he has given in, in every way you can interpret that. Which is disturbing because this is not a consensual relationship between people who are enjoying that. This is between a man and a young boy. In the classical Athenian framework, yeah. So. What she's saying here and what Phaedrus is saying is that the gods honor when an Erastes loves his Aramanos, but it's especially remarkable when an Aramanos actively loves his Erastes because they weren't supposed to do that. Like that wasn't part of the role. So it's like over and above. Over and above. And it's also like it's just this incredible kind of love when you are loved back by this person who's essentially a child um, <laughs> whose only job is to sort of put up with you abusing them. It's real dark when you look at historically what that was. So the article continues to break down this theory. Quote, both Aeschylus and Plato's Phaedrus see what they perceive to be a homoerotic relationship between Achilles and Patroclus and read Homer through these cultural norms. Phaedrus is not trying to demonstrate that Achilles and Patroclus were lovers. He seems to assume this assertion will be accepted largely without question by his audience. Rather, his problem with Aeschylus' fanfiction is that Aeschylus portrayed the lovers the wrong way around, presenting Patroclus as the Aramanos, the beloved, even though Homer clearly states that Achilles is younger than Patroclus. Phaedrus is not suggesting a transgressive or controversial reading of the relationship, but rather is forcing the relationship to conform to what he sees as culturally and socially appropriate. Moreover, the gender of the characters is not particularly important to him. It is the relative positions of the lovers in a hierarchical relationship with Achilles as the Aramanos that concerns him. So yeah, according to Juliet Grace Harrison, the question here is not whether Achilles and Patroclus were sleeping together. It's the dynamics of that relationship. Who was dominant and who was submissive? Yeah, and she's she's pointing out what we've been saying this whole time. The gender wasn't that important. It was who was who was dominant and who was submissive. Like that was their binary. So Homer kept the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus both maddeningly vague and blindingly obvious, and he did this for a reason. His audience would have already been very familiar with the stories of Achilles and Patroclus. So let's return to Troy and our lovers, and let's take a closer look at what's actually in the text and see what Homer and other sources had to say about how their relationship was perceived by those around them. So Achilles and Patroclus arrived in Troy. They shared a tent. They shared a bed. They fought side by side. They shared in the spoils of their victories. They protected each other and their status fiercely. They were life partners. There's a part of the Iliad that illustrates very clearly what their dynamic was. It's when Nestor tells Patroclus, quote, My child in birth is Achilles nobler than thou, but thou art the elder, though in might he is the better far. Yet do thou speak to him well a word of wisdom and give him counsel and direct him, and he will obey thee to his profit. So essentially, Patroclus is being told that Achilles might look like he's the one who's in charge, but you're the power behind the throne. 
you're the one with the power to direct the heat-sinking missile that is the greatest warrior of our time. But you can also kind of see how this would be confusing to the classical Greeks because it maybe makes Patroclus the Aramanos. Sort of, right? Like, on the one hand, it's like, well, he's he's the older, more mature one. But on the other hand, it's like, well, he's the power behind the throne. So that's kind of more of a feminine position, as the ancients would have seen it. Like, women weren't supposed to have power out in front. They weren't. But also, like, he has this power because he is the beloved, you know? Right, which would make him the Aramanos. I see how the ancient classical Greeks especially would have been wrapped around the axle over this. And here's the thing, Jenny, all the other Greek kings and warriors knew that Patroclus was the power behind the throne. They understood that Achilles was moody and he was intractable and he was prone to rage and feeling really slighted. But he was essential in the war effort. And that was why Patroclus, the son of a mediocre hero from a far-flung corner of Greece, an exiled prince, became someone whom all the other kings and soldiers begrudgingly had to respect. Achilles and Patroclus were a couple a power couple. They were roughly the same age, with Patroclus being a little older than Achilles, and it wasn't easy to tell who the dominant partner was. But the sources do keep telling us that Patroclus was older, and the older person was usually assumed to be the dominant one in the Erastes Aramanos pairing. But again, that also hinged on social status. Age wasn't the only thing there. So let's assume that Patroclus was a little older, let's say maybe five years, and let's look at this relationship from the Erastes Aramanos binary. Remember, again, we keep saying this, this binary would have been considered hetero to the classical Greeks. You could have a relationship as a man with another man and be seen as quote-unquote hetero in ancient Greece, as long as someone was dominating and someone was being submissive. Let's say in this dynamic, Patroclus is the Erastes. He's the older partner, but he doesn't have the wealth of Achilles, the skills of Achilles, the warrior prowess of Achilles. He's an exile, a man without a country. If we assume that he's the Erastes, the teacher, the lover, then what is he teaching Achilles? What can he give him? He doesn't even have a name or a country because he has been exiled from his homeland. But then again, okay, other hand, he's also described as Achilles' mentor, the one who calms him down, the one who talks sense into him, the only one that temperamental Achilles will listen to, the one that everyone has to go through to get to Achilles. Does that make him the Erastes? Maybe? But Patroclus's influence kind of reads as feminine here. Like, this is a role women took. The power behind the throne, not the one out in front. Yeah. So here's how mentorship between Erastes and Aramanos was supposed to work. The Erastes was supposed to educate the Aramanos in the ways of the world. To be, as we've said, a sort of mentor and a more socially advanced mentor. One who could open doors for the Aramanos. That's what the Aramanos is getting in exchange for sex. Obviously, as we've mentioned quite a lot, this was often pederastic and very abusive. But this was the idealized, according to the classical Athenians, version of what this relationship was supposed to be. But in the Achilles-Patroclus dynamic, Patroclus, the older one, is not exactly educating Achilles in the ways of the world. He's not introducing Achilles to society and giving him connections. Yeah, he's not raising his status, right? Like, he's not imparting status on Achilles. That was really what that mentorship was supposed to be. Yeah. Patroclus is just in love with Achilles. He's serving at Achilles' side. He's happy to be at his side and not the boss of him. He's giving Achilles the benefit of his wisdom, which is mostly, don't be so quick to anger. Not that Achilles has ever or would ever listen to that. Patroclus is Achilles' partner, 
and not in a pederastic way, but in a way that involves two consenting adults. And yes, Jenny, I think there's an argument to be made that Achilles is the power bottom. And maybe not even that he's the power bottom, but also that they switch roles all the time. Again, this is completely confounding to the classical Athenians. You know what? I think it's really none of our business, but I'm also totally here for the Achilles being the power bottom interpretation. It's a little bit swoony. (laughs) I mean, I don't need to know. I'm not interested in what they're doing in their tent, okay? I just want them to be happy. So Achilles and Patroclus don't fit easily into that Erastes and Romanos paradigm, but they were two men in love and at war. Kind of maybe the original model for the Sacred Band of Thebes, a group of men that probably also didn't easily fit into that paradigm, given their ages and the fact that they were from Thebes, which was maybe less pederastic overall? Maybe. We we made a case for that in the Sacred Band episodes. So Achilles and Patroclus were the prototype maybe for an entire real-world elite shock troop based on queer couples. And that's worth digging into a little more. So far, we've discussed their relationship with each other from a queer romantic lens, but Achilles and Patroclus were also two men at war, as the men of the sacred band were. And those relationships can also be extremely close and intense, even when platonic. Not to say that these two were platonic, we're just saying that that's another lens you could look at their relationship through. It's the wrong lens, but you could. Well, I think it's a second lens. I mean, I think that they're both in play here. They were two men in war who depended on each other in war, but they were also in love. Yes. So toward the end of things, the Trojan War had been grinding on for 10 years. Many epic heroes on both sides of the conflict had fallen, but not Achilles and Patroclus. In fact, when the Iliad opens, it's towards the end of the conflict, and Achilles has flat out refused, refused to fight anymore. This is because Agamemnon, who Achilles had some real history with that was not good, he had some serious beef, had taken away his war prize, Briseis. So we're going to get into into the whole Achilles and Briseis relationship more in our next episode, so we're not going to dwell too much on this here. Yeah, and we're going to get into where the beef with Agamemnon really starts. That also involves another woman, but not in this episode. Right. But the TLDR on this is that Achilles is not a fan of Agamemnon, and this is the final slight, the final fuck you, the final microaggression to Achilles' honor. This is not a microaggression. This is a macroaggression. It's a macroaggression. Anyway, it's the final fuck you to Achilles' honor that makes the great warrior say, you know what, you can fuck right off. You can go hurl yourself into the sea, Agamemnon. I am done. I'm done. And so... Achilles just refuses to fight, which means that the Greeks have to fight without Achilles. Achilles is straight up just cheering on the Trojans, the enemy side, and the war effort is going to shit. Yeah, he prays to Zeus. He's like, you know what? Let them realize how big a mistake they made in pissing me off. So the war effort is going to shit. Without Achilles' help, the Greeks are dangerously close to losing. The Trojans are about to burn the ships that will see the Greeks back home to their homeland. And it's only then that Patroclus steps in to try and get Achilles to do something about it. You've got to imagine for a minute how big this slight about Perseus would have been to keep Patroclus from stepping in earlier. How big of a fuck you to both Achilles' honor and prowess as a warrior and by extension, Patroclus's honor, this must have actually been, because things have really devolved. But Patroclus is not about to let the Greeks lose their ticket home. Patroclus goes to Achilles and begs him to join the fight, and Achilles refuses. So Patroclus does the next thing he can think of, the only thing that will scare the Trojans and allow Achilles to keep his honor. 
He begs Achilles to let him join the fight dressed in Achilles' armor. Achilles debates this a little. Remember, honor is at stake. That's right, Cucullin. He sounds a little <laughs> sleepy. Did you wake him up to say that? <laughs> I did. It is quite late over here, guys. I mean, that is breaking his gisa. It's a problem. So Achilles cannot be seen on the battlefield because that would mean he bowed to Agamemnon and allowed the most toxically masculine of all the Greeks to win this kind of petty squabble, which really isn't that petty. So allowing Patroclus to go out dressed as him would send the message that Achilles wants to protect the Greeks and that he hasn't bowed to Agamemnon, even though Agamemnon might think for a minute he has. I don't know, Jen. I think that first, before Patroclus whips off his helmet, everyone's going to think, oh, Achilles bowed to Agamemnon. So everyone's going to be assuming that anyway. And then when Patroclus whips off his helmet, they'll be like, oh, I guess Achilles was too chicken to come out on the battlefield anyway. I guess he cares what everybody thinks about him. He doesn't want to be seen bowing to Agamemnon. Well, no. So they would think that Achilles is there and fighting for them. But when Patroclus heroically whipped off his helmet at the end, it would be like, it isn't Achilles. It's Patroclus because Achilles cares about you but he can't break his honor. But just the mention of him, just his armor on the battlefield is enough to scare the Trojans. And if, if Agamemnon gloats a little bit, then I guess that's not as important as maybe we win this battle. Well, look, Achilles doesn't come off great here, right? Like, but what Patroclus is doing here is he's saying, right, you're not going to break your honor. You're not going to break your code because you're not going. I'm going. Just the sight of me is going to make all the other Greeks rally. It's going to make them fight harder because they're going to think it's you by their side and they're invincible because you are semi-divine Achilles, the greatest of the warriors. And that's true. That is kind of what happens. I, I do think Patroclus is doing a lot of petting and stroking here. That's kind of what Patroclus is saying. He's like, but at the end, I can take my helmet off and they'll realize it was me and you haven't broken your vow. And that if just the idea of you is enough to scare the Trojans, what would you actually being on the field do? Agamemnon's going to have to come crawling on his hands and knees and apologize. That's kind of how Patroclus is selling it, right? Patroclus does all the emotional labor. Like, that's kind of his role, and he's real good at it. Okay, so Patroclus has made his sales pitch. It's a damn good one, but Achilles is still, you know, like, thinking. He's like, wait a minute, let me think about this. Because the other factor to consider here is that Achilles and Patroclus have always fought side by side as a unit. They've never been parted on the battlefield. Achilles letting Patroclus fight without him by his side is risky. Not because Patroclus can't handle himself. I mean, he's survived 10 years of war. He must be able to handle a sword and spear. But because Achilles is not there to protect him. Where have we seen this before, you guys? Oh my god. Okay, it is baked into the very DNA of the sacred band of Thebes. These guys fought side by side. It was their strength. But the Trojans are threatening the Greek ships, which is the Greeks' way home. So in the end, Achilles allows Patroclus to go and fight without him, wearing his armor, in the hope that the sight of this will intimidate the Trojans or help tip the battle to the Greek side. And while Patroclus is off fighting, Achilles stays in his tent and prays. And this act is extremely gendered. Who prays when their men go off to fight? Who was left to beseech the gods? Women, children, and old men. Achilles in this moment is very much playing the same role that Andromache, Hector's wife, plays every day when he goes off to fight the Greeks. Achilles is praying for the safe return of his lover. While Patroclus is off fighting, Achilles goes to his war chest and pulls out a goblet and makes libations to Zeus. The greatest warrior the Greeks have ever known is powerless in this instant, mostly due to his hubris and honor, but 
he's also powerless. I do think he's made his own bed here. He absolutely has. All he can do is pray that Patroclus will come home unharmed. And I'm going to read you a quote from what he says in the Iliad. This is a translation by A.T. Murray. He's the translation we've used for some other quotes that are going to be coming up. We're quoting a lot, so we did want to do something that was public source. But the problem with that is it is very old-fashioned speech. There's going to be a lot of vows and very awkward wording and stuff. And verilies. (laughs) Yeah, strap in. (laughs) Quote, myself, verily, will I abide in the gathering of the ships. But my comrade I am sending forth amid the host of the Myrmidons to war. With him do thou send forth glory, O Zeus, whose voice is born afar, and make bold the heart in his breast, to the end that Hector too may know whether even alone my squire hath skill to fight, or whether his hands then only rage invincible. When so I enter the turmoil of Ares. But when away from the ships he hath driven war, and the din of war, then all unscathed let him come back to the swift ships with all his arms and his comrades that fight in close combat. So Achilles's words here are really heartbreaking. They're filled with a lot of uncharacteristic emotion and longing. He's saying to Zeus, give Patroclus glory. Let him kill Hector. Let them see that just my squire in my armor has the ability to, like, terrify everyone on the battlefield of Ares, right? Bringing it back to me just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit, because Achilles is a massive ego. That's his problem. His honor is always so important. But then bring it back to Patroclus. Most importantly, bring him back to me. With all his arms. With all his arms. <laughs> I mean, he does mean his weapons and everything else, but, you know. Was Patroclus an octopus? How many <laughs> arms did he have? The ancient Greeks need to know. Look, I'm not going to lie. Patroclus would make the best softopus ever. <laughs> he would. He'd be so cuddly. I mean, look, Homer doesn't say straight out that he wasn't an octopus. He just hints. He just hints that he could have been. <laughs> anyway, but the gods are fickle. The Greeks are beaten back. The ships are saved. But Patroclus falls in battle. He's slain by Hector, and all Achilles can do is hear the cheers and the gasps of the crowd from his tent. When Patroclus falls in battle, he's stripped of his armor. Everyone can see he's not Achilles. Hector takes the armor and shames his body. And the great Greek kings, particularly Menelaus, cuckolded husband of Helen, all fight to protect the corpse and bring it back to Achilles. So they're doing Achilles a solid here, even Achilles has been a real dill hole the whole time. They're doing Achilles a solid, but I think, like, the reality is that Achilles would probably kill them all if Patroclus's body didn't come back to him, right? I think they know what's going to happen. If this body does not come back to Achilles, no matter how angry he's going to be that somebody killed Patroclus, he's going to be even more angry at all the Greeks. He might just burn everything to the ground. That's fair. <laughs> there is no way the Trojans are taking this body. Anyway, so when Patroclus is brought back to Achilles, this is what Homer tells us Achilles does next. Quote, A black cloud of grief enwrapped Achilles, and with both his hands he took the dark dust and strewed it over his head and defiled his fair face, and on his fragrant tunic the black ashes fell, and himself in the dust lay outstretched, mighty in his mightiness. That's a great line. Mighty in his mightiness. (laughs) I know, you can see why I kept this ridiculous translation, right? And with his own hands, he tore and marred his hair. And the handmaidens that Achilles and Patroclus had got them as booty. 
Oh, no, that's the next episode where we get to talk about the booty and feel real bad about everything. (laughs) We're just not taking this seriously enough. Shrieked aloud in anguish of heart and ran forth around wise-hearted Achilles. I, I suspect that is sarcasm. And all beat their breasts with their hands, and the knees of each one were loosed beneath her. And over against them, Antilochus wailed and shed tears, holding the hands of Achilles, that in his noble heart was moaning mightily, for he feared lest he should cut his throat asunder with the knife. Thus terribly did Achilles groan aloud, and his queenly mother heard him as she sat in the depths of the sea beside the old man her father. Thereat she uttered a shrill cry, and the goddesses thronged about her, even all the daughters of Nereus that were in the deep of the sea. So, let's break this down. Achilles is so distraught at the death of Patroclus that he covers his face and hair and shirt in dirt and ashes. He tears at his hair and body, and he cries so loudly, moans so loudly that his mother, his very own mother, deep in the depths of the heart of the sea, hears him. Antilochus, one of the soldiers, has to make sure there are no knives or sharp objects around because everyone is afraid that in Achilles' mental state, he might take his own life. There's, again, when we compare this to Hades and Persephone, when Persephone is abducted by Hades, her cry is so loud that it, like, rents the earth. It echoes through everything. I feel like that's kind of what we're getting here with Achilles, right? His sorrow is so great that in the depths of the sea... The Nereids, the daughters of of Nereus, can hear that he is grieving. There's a really great episode on Let's Talk About Myths Baby, which is about Homer. And kind of the the posit is that Homer took all the big highlights as far as the creatures and storylines and included them in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I kind of think you can see this in the Achilles in the fire, and you can see this in Achilles' scream renting the earth, essentially. Mm, Interesting. So... This quote that we've read is heartbreaking. And again, it is a very gendered quote. That's the other reason I included it, because in this moment, he is crying and wailing like a woman. And it's very, very similar to how we see women in antiquity grieving the death of their husbands. It's something that you'll see mirrored in plays like the Trojan women. Women in ancient cultures had a very public mourning role, where they were seen covering themselves in ashes, beating their chests pulling at their hair, cutting off their hair, and wailing. So to have this example of very public, very feminine-coded grief coming from the greatest of the Greek warriors tells us a few things. First, Achilles obviously loved Patroclus. For everyone in the back of the classroom, he obviously loved him, okay? We're there? Good. I think they were just really good friends, Jen. Again, for everyone who's going to pass this class, Achilles loved Patroclus in a way that would one day maybe set the stage for the sacred band. Achilles normalized playing a feminine role in loving Patroclus and grieving for him as a very powerful Oromenos at a time when the relationship between two men of roughly the same age and stature was seen as queer. Thank you. That is my thesis. I will see you next week. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. (laughs) (laughs) And also, it tells us that Achilles was genderqueer. He would have read that way to an ancient Greek audience in both his appearance, remember he had in the past lived a chunk of his life as a girl, and in the public mourning role he took at Patroclus' death. This is all very feminine-coded, as Jen said. Madeline Miller, in an interview on her website about her novel, The Song of Achilles, tells us, quote, There is a lot of support for their relationship in the text of the Iliad itself, although Homer never makes it explicit. For me, 
The most compelling piece of evidence, aside from the depth of Achilles' grief, is how he grieves. Achilles refuses to burn Patroclus' body, insisting instead on keeping the corpse in his tent, where he constantly weeps and embraces it, despite the horrified reactions of those around him. That sense of physical devastation spoke deeply to me of a true and total intimacy between the two men. I mean, spoke that way to me too. That's why I have my thesis. I don't know. I still think they're just really good friends. Once again, for everyone who's going to pass this class. (laughs) Moldering corpse in the tent. We're not even at that bit yet. (laughs) And again, we see this in Homer. Achilles, at this point, has no armor because Patroclus was wearing his armor and then Hector took it when he killed Patroclus. In a sense, Achilles has kind of been unmanned. He cannot just take someone else's armor. I mean, he could, but it's really not honorable, right? This is not done. It's rude. And he can't wear Patroclus's armor that Patroclus had been using before because then what will Patroclus be buried in? And also, I think... Maybe even if he's not buried in it, then what will Achilles have of Patroclus? So his mother, Thetis, goes to Hephaestus, the blacksmith god, to make Achilles a final suit of armor. And she knows that this will be his final suit of armor because she knows when he kills Hector that Achilles is not long for this world. This, as I said, is the last armor that Achilles will ever need. And while Achilles waits for this armor to be forged, While he waits for his chance to kill Hector, he refuses to allow Patroclus to be buried. The body is just sitting in the tent. It's starting to ripen and smell. And Achilles is also starting to ripen and smell. Because he won't bathe, his clothes and hair are covered in dirt and soot and blood. Achilles' outward appearance matches his inner turmoil. I don't know. I think they're still just really good friends. For everyone who wants to pass the class, ignore Jenny. Look at the body. It's still in his tent, for God's sake. It's still in his tent. He's cuddling it. He's spooning it at night. He's spooning the corpse still. Literally, the gods have to come down. Thetis has to personally protect it when he goes out to fight Hector. The gods actually did put some sort of anti-smell magic on Patroclus's body to keep it from decaying because I think the smell was even bothering them up there. And they were upset about this, too. Like, this is just not done. You don't do this. But poor Patroclus's spirit cannot rest. He comes to Achilles one night. Here's how Homer describes it. Quote, Then there came to Achilles the spirit of hapless Patroclus, in all things like his very self, in stature and fair eyes and in voice, and in like raiment was he clad withal. And he stood above Achilles' head and spake to him, saying, Quote, within the quote, Thou sleepest, and hast forgotten me, Achilles. Not in my life wast thou unmindful of me, but now, in my death, bury me with all speed, that I pass within the gates of Hades. Afar do the spirits keep me aloof. The phantoms of men that have done with toils, neither suffer they me to join myself to them beyond the river, but vainly I wander through the wide-gated house of Hades. And give me thy hand, I pitifully entreat thee, for never more again shall I come back from out of Hades when once ye have given me my due of fire. Never more in life shall we sit apart from our dear comrades and take counsel together. But for me hath loathly fate opened its maw, the fate that was appointed me even from my birth— I, and thou thyself also, Achilles, like to the gods, art doomed to be brought low beneath the wall of the wealthy Trojans. And another thing will I speak, and charge thee, if so be thou wilt hearken, 
Lay not my bones apart from thine, Achilles, but let them lie together. Then in answer spake to him Achilles, swift of foot. Wherefore, O dear beloved, art thou come hither, and thus givest me charge about each thing? Nay, verily I will fulfill thee all, and will hearken even as thou biddest. But I pray thee, draw thou nigher, though it be but for a little space, let us clasp our arms, one about the other, and take our fill of dire lamenting. I don't know, Jen. I think they're just really good friends. Homer's got more to say. So saying, he reached forth with his hands, yet clasped him not, but the spirit like a vapor was gone beneath the earth, gibbering faintly. And seized with amazement, Achilles sprang up and smote his hands together and spake a word of wailing. Look you now, for the whole night long hath the spirit of hapless Patroclus stood over me, weeping and wailing, and gave me charge concerning each thing, and was wondrously like his very self. So spake he, and in them all aroused the desire of lament, and rosy-fingered dawn shone forth upon them, while they yet wailed around the piteous corpse. This moment where Patroclus returns to Achilles, where he begs him to bury his body so that he might find rest in the halls of Hades, is so visceral and so heartrending. We all feel for Achilles. We all understand the pain of his grief, and we all feel for Patroclus. We want him to find the peace he deserves. And this feeling, this grief, this sorrow is one of the strongest motivators for the sacred band. None of those elite warriors wanted to outlive their beloved. None of them wanted to be Achilles. The rest of the war winds down the way you'd expect. Achilles gets his armor and kills Hector. Achilles, in his grief, cuts his hair short as women did when they grieved a loved one. He washes and bathes Patroclus's body, again a job generally left to women in the preparation of the dead. Patroclus is buried with honors, and when Achilles falls, far from his homeland within the walls of Troy, he's buried with Patroclus. Together they share a tomb as lovers in life and death. Throughout the ages, Achilles and Patroclus have come down to us as friends and comrades. The story of their love is often straightwashed. Supporting the love of these two epic figures is sometimes seen as transgressive to the original text, but Achilles and Patroclus were not just friends and comrades. They were lovers. And Achilles, the toughest, most dangerous, most epic warrior the Greeks ever knew, was absolutely genderqueer. And in a relationship that would have read as very queer, not just to us today, but to the ancient Greeks back then. Who was the Erastes? Who was the Arabinos? Who knows? Who cares? This is quite frankly none of our business. And it doesn't mean anything. You can be the super badass warrior on the battlefield but also feminine presenting. You can be the power behind the throne, the calming influence, the reasonable one, and also a very doodly dude. You can do whatever you feel like in bed and it doesn't have to mean anything about your gender unless you feel that it does. Obviously, we don't need to tell you that, but it is true. Even so, it's so, so easy to romanticize Achilles and Patroclus, just as it is to romanticize the sacred band. There's something so intense and swoony and visceral and romantic about love in the time of war, even though there's nothing romantic about the reality of war at all. We love this pairing, and we sometimes let the romance get the better of us. We indulged ourselves hard when we did our episodes on the Sacred Band because it had been a long, dark season, and frankly, we needed to do that. But the story of the Sacred Band leaves out women. And the story we just told you about Achilles and Patroclus mostly left them out, too. 
by design. But the sacred band didn't exist in a silo, and neither did Achilles and Patroclus. Their deeds, their actions, had long-ranging consequences for the women who crossed their paths. In our next episode, we're going to dig into whatever happened to the women who came into the supernova orbit of Achilles and Patroclus. So that's it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. Where can they find us, Jenny? Well, you can find us at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter, Ancient History Fangirl at Instagram and Facebook, and you can find our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where there are several opportunities to support the podcast. We have merch. We have a Ko-Fi account if you feel like chipping in a few bucks. We have a Patreon if you feel like getting extra episodes and, um, you know, supporting us once a month. And you can also pre-order our book and do all kinds of other fun things. You should you should visit our website. <laughs> whatever you're listening to us on, Spotify, Apple, whatever, there is a place where you can rate, review, and subscribe. Please do that. It's so good for us. It helps us go up in the ratings. It helps us go into charts. And we really appreciate it. And we have some Patreon members to thank this week. We do. Apologies in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Thank you so much to Cassandra Morrison, April W., Juliana Baker, Courtney Whistler, Kitty Stegman, Balder 12, Lauren Langston, Victoria, Amber, just Amber, Madison Ulrich, Livy Rislinger, Molly Maloney, Cambria Craig, Stephanie Faust, Mouse, just Mouse, Vita Escalante, and Brianna. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.